Crackers. Metallica's demo wound up in the hands of Johnny and Marsha Zazula, who ran a music flea market in New Jersey called Rock and Roll Heaven. It was the East Coast capital of the growing metal movement. Johnny Z offered to manage Metallica and to secure them a recording deal. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 46. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Johnny Z, legendary founder of Megaforce Records and Craze Management, and the man often credited with discovering Metallica. There's a brand new book by John called Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, as Lived by John Zazula. It's all about his early life, about the metal heaven flea market that he ran in New Jersey, and signing Metallica as their first manager and first record label. Johnny Z and Megaforce Records went on to work with a number of bands, including Anthrax, Testament, Merciful Fate, Raven, Overkill, Exciter, S.O.D., M.O.D., King's X, Ministry. The book has a foreword from Speak and Destroy guest Chuck Billy of Testament. In this episode, given that this is, of course, a Metallica podcast, we are pretty Metallica-specific. Talking about his first meeting with the band, the guys staying with him and his wife, Marsha, the making of Kill Em All, the making of Ride the Lightning, the story behind Metallica inviting John Bush to be their vocalist, the importance of 12-inch singles back in the day, losing the band to a bigger management company and a major record label, and where things stand with Johnny Z and Metallica today. It's a very fun conversation, and it's impossible to deny the importance of Johnny Z's role as an architect, one of a handful of visionaries who helped bring Metallica to the world. So here it is, my conversation with Johnny Z. This is Speak and Destroy. time in your life to do a book and and tell these stories in that format well ryan i wanted to do a book for years but i retired in june of 19 excuse me 2018 and i was sitting around really thinking like i need something to do here man this is gonna drive me crazy so i said you know what maybe i'll write this book and that's what i'll do and uh, the, the best part about writing the book to me was publishing it myself. Right. And having fun marketing myself. I'm always marketing all these people. I never did me. <laughs> so I, uh, I don't know if you know it, but we're number one on the wish list on Amazon right now. And in hot new releases, we're number four and five with two different formats, the ebook and the hardcover. And I'm not even going to be out till October 29th. It's great to be talking to you today because just yesterday I got the new issue of Polestar in the mail with an in-depth cover story declaring Metallica to be the biggest band in the world. When you think about the Kill 'Em All days and this being, you know, the niche among the niche among the niche for, for us fans to be sitting here in 2019 talking about them as the biggest band in the world. I mean, that's just got to feel. How does that feel for you? It feels great. I always thought they'd be the biggest band in the world. I never had a doubt. From the second I heard their tape, I said, this is the biggest band in the world. They're going to be huge. And I said it then. So I'm not just blowing smoke up your behind, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I put it. 
I mean, you, you literally put your money where your mouth was then, so there's no denying that. Everything where my mouth is, my electric bill, my mortgage, everything. <laughs> so tell me where you were at in your life and career around the time you came into contact with Metallica and how that first, you know, how they first came under your radar. Well, the store Rock and Roll Heaven, which Marshall and I owned in a flea market in East Brunswick, New Jersey, was doing very well at the time. Mm -hmm. And somebody brought me a demo tape, as the legend goes. And I didn't want to listen to it, but I was forced to listen to it by this man's persuasion. He said, Johnny, you're going to love this. I know the music you like. This is American. You're not going to believe it. So I tried to appease him because he wasn't leaving the store. And I played the No Life to Leather demo or tape. And it literally blew me away so much that I got this feeling that I had to share their life with them. I had to be a part of their world and would do anything to see how I could get in touch with them. I was doing a lot of shows in the Northeast, and I had 12 shows lined up for them, some with Venom, uh, some with Twisted Sister, The Rod, Vandenberg, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I said to the boys, when I finally got in touch with them, you know, I'd like to offer you these shows. Why don't you come over and let's see what we can do here, you know, and let's let's build you up in the Northeast. So I sent them the money for their U-Haul. It was $1,500 at the time. Mm -hmm. They rented a U-Haul, and they drove from El Cerrito to Old Bridge, New Jersey, where I lived, and parked right in front of my house when people getting out of the U-Haul. They were sleeping in the U-Haul even, you know, while they were driving. Yeah. With the door. They were... Real rages, real rages. We we put them on the shows. They lived in my house for a long time. And then they lived at the Fun House, which is Metal Joe's house in Farmingdale, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. We took care of them after the terrible situation in the Jamaica Music Building where they were forced to live in horrible circumstances and squalor. Yeah, that's the, uh, the, the famous bologna on hand sandwich. We set them up with a room. Uh, at this place, the music building in Jamaica, Queens, which was basically what would be now considered like a crack house. <laughs> we had the added luxury of also living there because we couldn't afford to live anywhere else. We had a toaster oven and an igloo cooler that we lived out of, all four of us in this place. On a good day, we would sneak down a local McDonald's on a bad day. Uh... It was loser's lunch, we called it. It was uh, bologna on hand because they, they didn't even have white bread. I mean, nothing. And the, the anthrax guys were like bringing them food and stuff, yeah. Yes. Well, what was supposed to happen was Anthrax had a beautiful, clean rehearsal studio. And it was very nice to camp out and in sleeping bags. It would have been a beautiful scene and no problem. But the owner of the building wouldn't let me have a band stay in any of the rooms. You weren't allowed to sleep in your studio was the law. So he found me a place up on the roof where they could hang out. I mean, up in the attic. It was it was very bad. It was very bad. But I had no choice, and the band had nowhere to go. And we were waiting on uh, dates to play, and you know we just made do. And God bless them, they got through it. And backing up just a little bit, when you reached out to them, uh, was this? Uh... Phone, fax, snail mail, and I, I assume Lars was probably the first one you spoke to as he's, you know, always been the uh, communicator. 
Well, I didn't have a fax machine, and there was <laughs> no, there was no email, there was no cell phones, there was no digital, no social uh, marketing, nothing. And I called them on the old-fashioned phone long distance to California. I originally called K.J. Dorton. His name was on the back of the cassette I had. Mm. And I called K.J. And K.J. had Lars's number, but he called Lars. And then Lars called me at my home one night during dinner. And we had quite a conversation about, yes, you could trust me. This is what my dream is. This is what my plans are. Just come and I'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. And they came. Amazing. They believed me. I believed in them. They were going to take the 1500 and spend it to get here. And they believed I was going to get them gigs. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned right from the get-go that when, you know, someone was in the store trying to convince you to listen to No Life to Leather and saying, you'll never believe this is an American band. I mean, yeah, you were one of the people who was knee-deep in the new wave of British British heavy metal at the time, which, you know, was really something that really just small pockets of passionate people were connecting to at that time. And it was, I mean, if you could kind of describe a little bit how small that network was and how few places there were like your store to be able to go and find those records. And then, yeah, the idea that an American band would be taking cues from that was, had to feel revolutionary. Well, you have to understand where I had my place, my store, it was right near Old Bridge, New Jersey, a real blue collar town where everybody loved Black Sabbath. They grew up on Kiss. Ted Nugent, you know, Mahogany Rush, uh, all that stuff, you know, uh, UFO. And it got to the point where they were into Iron Maiden already. And I had all this stuff in my store, plus everything new that you could possibly dream of finding. And I listened to every single record over and over again. I knew if I liked it and I knew if I didn't like it. If I liked it, I recommended it. If I didn't like it, I put two copies on the shelf, and if people got it, I told them, not my favorite, and I played them my copy because I kept a copy of every album. Mm. And if they didn't like it, they didn't have to buy it because I, my word was taken religiously. Like when I said Restless and Wild, except you must have this record. <laughs> it came in. Everybody walked out with one. Whenever I hear Old Bridge, of course, for me as a, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and I discovered Metallica around 86. So, you know, I was I was late to it in terms of this this part of the story. But when I hear the phrase old, you know, I think Old Bridge Militia, Old Old Bridge Militia is the kind of, you know, legendary Metallica crew. Yeah, I'm wearing my Old Bridge Militia shirt right now. (laughs) Awesome. I'm a big believer in the Old Bridge Militia, which is now a foundation and they give back to the world. They raise money for instruments for schools and people who can't afford lessons and can't afford instruments. And they help move pianos and God knows what they do. Anything that has to do with music, they hold recitals for the kids as they learn. The Elbridge Militia is great and they're a wonderful foundation now. But not a lot, many of us are not alive anymore. A lot of us have died. And what's left is grateful for being alive. So that's the Old Militia story. Yeah. They were very integral, integral in taking care of Metallica because it was Metal Joe's Funhouse, as I said, where they lived for the longest time and wrote most of the Ride the Lightning. What was the reception like 
to Metallica in general, kind of in that East Coast scene, you know, them coming from the West Coast and, and not being as, as known out there. And of course, New York having New York and New Jersey having a lot of their own great metal bands. And what was that kind of vibe like when these, you know, there was nothing like Metallica in the Northeast. Nothing at all. Thrash didn't exist. It was brand new. And I gave them 12 shows, and every show where they played, they won everybody over. They went from 20 people knowing them to the Rio Theater before the Rose, before the Kill em All for One tour, and where they went out with Raven mm-hmm. across America. And they did 500 people by the time I was done with getting them built up. And again, every time they played, they won over the crowd and the crowd kept coming to every show. And it just grew and grew and grew. You're going to laugh when I tell you, I thought I was making it with them when I saw the first Metallica t-shirt being worn on the streets of of (laughs) New York. Metallica t-shirt. Wow. Yeah. And then, and now and now you walk you can walk into Target and Walmart and see Metallica t-shirts. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, they're like brother. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about at the time when, you know, they make the drive in the U-Haul from Cerritos and they come stumbling out and and you're you're getting to know them as people. If you could kind of talk about each of the four guys initially what was your impression of each of them in in terms of you know personality and ambition and and just your whole understanding of of who they were as people well laws started the communication right away cliff was doubtful james was just there and (laughs) and was just thrashing and uh the first thing they did was you know, they drank up my whole entire bar and took the bottles and went to my flea market store. And when I got there, Marsh's father was uh, working the cash register because we were taking meeting Metallica. Mm-hmm. Saw them drunk and carrying on and thrashing around and acting really like punks. <laughs> I had and how much I said that I was going to do for them. And he pulled me on the side and said, Johnny, are you sure you know what you're doing? This may be out of control for you. <laughs> and that's your father-in-law. You got to take that seriously. <laughs> got to know his medal at 60, 70 years old. You know? <laughs> yeah. He wanted me to sign Man of War. Oh, wow. Awesome. He thought that Louis sounded like a cantor. In a synagogue, you know, I played him Valhalla. This, I don't know if you know that song. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And uh, he started crying <laughs> that we're wow. going to get involved. He thought it was so amazing, you know. That's uh, so cool. It was so cool. So in that early involvement, and I think this is an interesting thing, for people listening to this now to kind of understand, you know, I, I also manage bands and you know, when people ask, Oh, you're the, you're the band manager. What do you do? And then they, they start going down the list <laughs> and it's like, well, uh, what do you got? You know? And, and for you in that time and in that era of the music business, I mean, you were taking out, you were getting them shows, you were the record label, you were the management, you were, uh, lodging. <laughs> you were, <laughs> 
you know, merchandising company. A merchandising company, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, food and board and and everything else. What? Bottle washer. <laughs> laundry, probably. <laughs> no, no, they did their own laundry at my house. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. <laughs> you provided the equipment. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I guess the question would be, what was that relationship, and what was the? Uh, I mean, you're taking on so many things right out of the gate, and even with as popular as they became in this, that scene that quickly, um, you know, obviously right there in the beginning, like you said, you're putting your electric bill, your, you know, everything on the line. What was your sort of idea, you know, in, in taking on that much responsibility and that much of a risk that, that early? I didn't even think about it, Ryan. I just did it because I believed so much. I was absolutely insane. <laughs> I mean, yeah. My family, as long as I made Metallica as big as I can, and I figured God would sort it all out later, you know? He did. <laughs> Put up with me, you know? Just imagine being my wife, what it must have been like. Imagine you being as crazy as me, living on hand to mouth, Six months behind in your bills, yet taking a band into a studio to record an album. As every Metallica fan knows, you know, it was uh, shortly after they arrived on the East Coast that they relieved Mr. Mustaine of his duties in the band, which they had, you know, been planning on, on the way there. And obviously they had already, you know, they were listening to tapes up in the up in the cab with while Dave's in the back and, and all that sort of thing. What was your understanding of that situation as it was unfolding? Well, the band was very concerned with Dave's drinking. Even though the band drank more than anybody I could ever imagine drank. But I think David, when he drank, he reacted to it very differently. Like some people could drink a bottle of booze and just carry on a conversation, just a little stone. Dave would get thrashed. And they were worried about him. And when, he, but the thing is, when he went on stage, you'd be scared to death because you didn't know what was going to happen. But the truth is, I bit my nails off every night they went on that stage, but he never fucked up. He played his parts. He did real great. He was Dave Mustaine, rock star. And his red hair and everything, he looked great. And then he got off the stage, and that was another story. So when the band came to me and said what was going to happen, I just said, do you have somebody that you could replace him with? They told me they did. You know, they gave me some, for some reason, I thought Kirk was 16 years old. <laughs> well, he looked like it. <laughs> he looked like it when he came. But uh, I was very worried when I saw him. I said, this is going to be with Metallica. But he knew his parts. He just, man, he was ready to play within days. He went out and did shows. And I think the showcase in Dover, New Jersey, was his first show. Kirk Hammond. You know, obviously history has proven, even when you look at some of those old performances with Mustaine still in the band, there was just, there was, too much charisma, too much personality, too many ideas for to, to contain in one band. It's like that that lineup needed to split into two great thrash bands. <laughs> there was, you know, the world was better for it. 
it was a it was a genesis, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a great comparison. You know, that's what it was. It was a two-headed dragon too, but you had laws really making good decisions. He mm-hmm. and talked all the time, and every step we took, as I mentioned in other interviews, the secret to Metallica was never to do anything cliche. Yeah, from and they've continued with that through every stage. Yeah, for sure. Right. Around, out of the box, everything. Outside the box, everything. Just when somebody thinks this, do that. And they do it today. Yeah, they that that's laws. You know, everyone knows the No Life to Leather demo. Everyone knows Kill Em All. But in between, there's what, you know, is often referred to as the Megaforce demo, which I believe is the only recordings we have with both Mustaine and Cliff in the band at the same time. What can you tell me about that? You know, I've had that tape for years and years and years now. What can you tell me about its origins and where it fits in? I don't know what Megaforce recordings you're talking about. Um, I only had No Life to Leather live at the Mab. And Megaforce, which did exist, it was Rock and Roll Heaven, they put out, uh, they, they marketed the demos. So we were selling demos like they were records, but I don't know if anything of us, you know, of a bootleg. You know, I just pulling it up on the on the interwebs. It says the Megaforce demo was recorded on March sixteenth, nineteen eighty three, and was the band's last demo release. Recorded with Dave Mustaine, it was intended to introduce Cliff Burton to potential record labels and helped earn the band a contract with Megaforce. I have to tell you, I went with four songs from No Life to Leather to the record companies with a full album in my a full cassette in my pocket. I never made a Megaforce demo. This is why I'm asking you about it. <laughs> we get we get the real story. <laughs> it's saying uh, two songs. See, this is the kind this is the kind of fascinating show as a super fan that I wanted to to get into with you. And then there's also the one from '82 that people call the power metal demo, which was before No Life Till Leather. That one was never really released. That that's that definitely is out there more as a bootleg. There's No Life Till Leather, which was seven songs, and then the, the so-called Megaforce demo from March of 83 was Whiplash and No Remorse. And uh, and that's said to be the only Mustaine-Burton recording. I had no idea. Well, it's great that they call it Megaforce, even though it wasn't yours. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Helps the legend. If I did do it, I have no recollection whatsoever. Taking us then into Kill Em All, and you, know, you mentioned The Rods as one of the bands that you know, you could potentially get Metallica shows with. And I know they were in upstate New York recording with some of the same people you ended up assembling to record Metallica. Uh, how did that team come together? You know, how, how did you end up choosing those those two guys and, and picking that studio? And... The Rods came to do their business. Vandenberg came to do their business. And Metallica came to do their business. If they communicated and they hung out between each other, I have no idea. I was too busy making the shows work, you know, and out front and just telling the guys break a leg, you know, but, uh, Oh, I'm just curious how the, for when it was time to make kill them all, how you ended up choosing those two engineers and, and picking that studio. 
Well, that is interesting. Paul Curcio, who was the producer, owned the studio that was called Barrett Alley in Rochester, New York. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for a studio, and I heard the some of the Manowar stuff that was produced there, and the drums were huge. Everything sounded really, really fresh and exciting. And that was the closest thing I could find to a studio in the Northeast that would even understand or have the sound capacity to handle this band if we were to make the album we needed to make. So we needed an engineer, and Chris Bubash was recommended to me by Joey DeMeo from uh, Man of War. Oh, and nice. Uh That's basically how we got together. Now, Chris did a bunch of stuff. He's really in a, a lot of stuff for me later on. Mm-hmm. But he had nothing to gauge uh, the sound with. He had no music to take and make a comparison. There was no Exodus yet. There was no Slayer yet. There was just Metallica, and he would be listening to Van Halen, you know, to right. get the right... I'm going, no, no, that's not it. And Paul Curcio, the producer, he was making an album that, to me, sounded like a Santana record. I think he was the engineer for Santana. And it just wasn't happening at the very end. And then finally, James complained to me, Batman, Johnny, this sucks, after all this. And I went to the engineer, and I went to the producer, and I said, look, we got to go in there for another as many hours as it takes. And James got to put his chugga chugga on this so we don't have a Metallica album, you know? (laughs) So James went in there, he cut his tracks, and what you have now is Kill Em All. It was mixed the best we could without the engineer having anything to reference against. Right. You know, you could reference against Kill Em All and Anthrax. Fistful of Metal. There was no Fistful of Metal and no Kill em All for until they were born, you know. Right. I mean, you're you're in uncharted waters at that point, um, trying to figure out what, how to what it what it sounds like in the studio. Yeah. Waters yeah. with lots of shocks. <laughs> and when I, when I spoke to Chris, one of the things he he mentioned that stood out to him is he remembered when the uh, when the guys you know got to the studio, the terrible state that a lot of their gear was in <laughs> just from being thrashed around on the road and at the shows and uh you know that that was one of, one of the the first orders of business was to get some of their stuff in working order and that sort of thing it's very possible he spoke very highly of you and of your involvement he said you were uh you and lars were really hands-on and that you're the, the two guys he has the most recollection of from that whole experience as being, you know, really, really overseeing it and concerned about things and making sure everything worked the way it was supposed to. We had to. Remember, uncharted borders, you can make a mistake very easily. And I had a lot of money at risk and I wanted it to sound like, I knew I had to put out an album that sounded better than No Life So Leather. Yeah. That was going to be hard. That was going to be hard. Unfortunately, Chris didn't really remember a whole lot about this. Uh, perhaps you do. But, uh, you know, Anesthesia, Pulling Teeth, which uh, I actually went to the 
SNM, one of the SNM two shows in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, one of the cellists from the symphony came out with an electric cello and did this really faithful rendition of anesthesia. And they had the drum kit out there and Lars came out and did the drum part, which, you know, they don't really do that full version, you know, since Cliff, other than the, the one time they did uh, kill them all front to back. What do you remember about the bass solo and about that, you know, which of course now is such a legendary part of the record, but again, it's something that's relatively unprecedented and, and certainly not that common for a, a band like that to have a, a whole bass solo, <laughs> you know, on the record. We knew they were different. We were making an album to sound different and be not cliche, as I mentioned. They wanted to do a bass solo. Who am I to tell them no? <laughs> sounded great. It sounded fantastic. Why not? In fact, I put the bass solo on the 12-inch single. Yeah. You know, I loved it so much, and we remixed it for that. The album was originally going to be titled Metal Up Your Ass. With the, yes. uh, with the with the cover with the image that we know from the T-shirts now of the the hand with the knife right. coming out of the toilet. Right. Tell me a, a little bit about that, and you know the the resistance that you got from the distributors and everything, and how uh, how how and why the uh, album title ended up being what it was. I believe that toilet bowl scenario was mine, and what happened was I went to the distributor who was looking at me already like, what the hell is this guy about? <laughs> the distributor told me, you can't have an album that's called Metal Up Your Ass. <laughs> I said, well, we'll call it Muya. He goes, people are going to ask what it is. It's no good. And a toilet bowl with a knife going, a sword going through it. I wanted it up the guy's ass and on his top. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> like fistful of metal right up his ass and out. Yeah. But, they didn't want it. So we sat down with the band. I had to break it to them. And everybody was pissed off. And Cliff had a shirt, kill them all, let God sort them out. Mm -hmm. And he just said, just let's kill them all. And everybody said, that's a cool name for the album. Kill them all. Fuck them. Next thing you know, it. that's the name of the album. And I'm in a photography lab trying to create an album cover that I hope the band will like. And we created the album cover, you know, with a light table and the blood and the hammer. Yeah. Like a crime. And the band loved it. And that became Kill Em All. The picture on the back, we didn't even want to retouch because of the pimples and everything. Yeah. We said, man, like, this is what you get. Yeah, which which was especially awesome in that era of hairspray and spandex and image, 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 uh, and the, the pop metal stuff that was happening to have, you know, this group of guys who looked like the road crew, <laughs> you know. Look, we're always one of you. Exactly. I was going to say, they looked like me and my friends, and that's what I think what, uh, what part of the, what attracted us to the band is, you know. Right. When, I, when I was a teenager, that was they had that vibe of like this could be you, like we are your people, this is our tribe, you know. And we we gravitated towards that uh, immediately when when we discovered it. Right. I would love to hear anything you remember about creating that image. Uh, you know, where where'd you get the hammer? What what was the blood? <laughs> you know, how, how did that all come together? 
telling you, I took a walk to a photographer's studio. Uh-huh. I heard he was a creative photographer, and I heard he did what in those days could be considered graphic arts. And I just gave him a concept, and this is what he delivered. And I loved it, and I took it to the band, and they loved it. That's all there is to the story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There is, there's a figment in my mind that the man created from what I said. You know, nowadays, if you tell somebody you want a concept like that, there's a million different ways that they could go about it. But back then, it's, you know, I imagine it's a photographer maybe taking a picture of his own hand holding a hammer, you know? Probably. How the, the visceral sort of authenticity that that lends it. You know, what's interesting about the album title, too, is, you know, David Ellison has, has become a, a dear friend over the years, which is incredible because he was, you know, such a big part of my teenage years prior to ever dreaming that I would meet the guy a little and be, be tight with him. But when, uh, when I had David on the podcast, he mentioned, you know, completely unconnected from one another, just sort of the serendipity that the album title for the first Megadeth record killing is my business was a result of going into a military surplus store. And there's a bunch of shirts that say, kill them all, let God sort them out and killing is my business and business is good. And, you know, not knowing that the Metallic album was going to be called Kill Em All, <laughs> getting that killing is my business idea. And it's just the, the kind of parallel thinking and the serendipity of the, the master plan that's happening. It's just it's pretty incredible in, in hindsight. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of divine intervention involved in all this. For sure. Was there a moment or a series of moments when that album started to really take off where you really noticed like, OK, I knew this was going to be something special but this is just mind-blowing you know where i can't believe well this thing. what happened was there were some stores that were having success with the album i couldn't afford advertisement so i sent what they call free goods mm -hmm. so instead of spending 250 dollars for an ad i would send a box of records now, they would have to buy another box or two for me to do that, or there's no purpose of me giving them records if they're only going to sell what I give them for free. Mm -hmm. Ben wouldn't make any money if we did it that way. So what happened was these stores started to sell through their boxes, and it became the kind of thing where we got the stores to back up and sponsor radio shows like wall the wall sound and music in Philadelphia would would sponsor YSP's metal shop <laughs> you know <laughs> and they would we would they would play the hell out of Metallica tell everybody available in wall sound sell it out and this was the same wherever we had Amoeba Records. Wherever there was a store, Chicago had a store, I can't think of the name anymore, that really loved Metallica and really sold the hell out of it. And it just grew all over the place. I had a, a radio station in Wichita, Kansas, KICT, that was playing heavy metal and playing Metallica. So it all helped, you know, and uh, that's how we grew it, by the way. Tell me a little bit about, you know, especially for people who wouldn't really understand this part of the business back then, you know, the idea of, of extended play singles of a 12 inch single, you know, what was well, the, what was the idea behind that and you know how all that came yeah. together? 
Number one, it was cheaper than an album. It's $3.50 in a store. Wow, right. Yeah. I was able to get them out to people who didn't want to buy the album or wanted a taste. It also was a vehicle that I made and I sold to the public, but it was really to send to radio stations and influential people as like a little rare thing that Metallica has out right now. It ended up selling a lot, but its intention was originally for promotion and to be like a collector's item for the Killer Mall people. Nice. That was the whole purpose of the single, and that was why we did it. And you mentioned, yeah, it, it's it's called the uh, Special Neck Brace remix of Whiplash. Do you remember anything about remixing it for that single and, and sort of what the idea was there? I know we didn't remix it that much. We just brought out a few things. I, I, I'll tell you the truth. It wasn't that much of a remix to really make a big deal, but it was enough to really enhance the sound of... Uh, with uh, pulling anesthesia, pulling teeth, I think really sounds big on that single. You know, uh, I don't know if I played it at 45 or 33, but the white bands also made it sound very good because it's on a large 12 inch plaque. You know, mm -hmm. makes the sound three times better. And uh, yeah, and I love that that great photo on that single. And uh, and then there was the uh, the jump in the fire single that came after Whiplash, right? Yes, it did. And that's the one that really got played heavy. You know, when I say got played heavy, there were six to seven stations in the whole country that played metal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, well, two or 11 or one, you know, midnight hour metal matters. You know, so uh, we had to make sure that every one of those stations was playing our music and they played Metallica. Regularly, it really was like a main, it was every station's favorite band. So they played the shit out of it. That cover art on that was, you know, obviously it's, you know, legendary at this point. A guy named Les Edwards. Do you remember anything about getting that cover? No, I think I got the design. Did I get it from England? I don't even know. I don't even know. You know, I, there's so much that I remember, but there's so much Ryan that I just don't remember anymore. Well, and at the end, well, and in the moment, you're not you're not writing everything down. Going, this is going to be stuff of a legend in 30, 40 years. <laughs> you know, so it's understandable. I had to have in my book my whole music career and life timeline because I didn't even remember what album came before what. We've heard over the years that there was some discussion at one point about bringing in John Bush to sing for Metallica. Clear as day, Lars wanted John Bush to be the lead singer of Metallica. James thought maybe Lars should be the lead singer of Metallica. He didn't want to sing. And I did call John Bush, but John Bush was with Ahmed Sane, and he and Joey and his team were very content with being Ahmed Sane, and they were doing very well didn't feel the need to come and sing for a band called Metallica. And it was decided that James was going to do the vocals. I made no other calls for lead singers for Metallica. It was just John Bush. I spoke to him, turned me down. I got to tell you, Johnny, too, I, I love, as much as any metal fan, you know, I've got 
among the living and even spreading and the spreading the disease part of my dna and you know I've, I've seen the band with joey many times joey's a great front man my personal favorite anthrax album is sound of white noise it was very well produced and uh it did very well it, it, it the problem the only problem it had it sold like six hundred thousand, but it didn't sell a million <laughs> no, and it was you know, and, it, and it's Electra in the early '90s, and they're coming out of the Black album, going like, "All right, maybe Anthrax is going to sell 16 million." Yeah, and you know, the band struggled for quite a bunch of years. And with the resurgence of metal, they're back and they're stronger than ever. Yeah, and of course, I, you know, people don't understand that maybe don't follow the, the inside baseball of the business so closely. Is also around that time, Electra had uh, some significant change in leadership at the top. And I think some new people came in and said, Motley Crue, Anthrax, what, why, yeah. why we still got these bands kicking around over here? Business is business. Skipping to Ride the Lightning, of course, which was made in Lars's home country of Denmark at Sweet Silence Studios. How did that all come about, you know, when it became time for them to make a second, a second record? And, you know, of course, that was a Megaforce album as well, though it was later, uh, you know, you did the deal with Elektra down the road. Uh, initially, you know, what, what was kind of the circumstances going into uh, Metallica album number two and the decision to, to make that one in Europe and all that sort of thing? That was a good move for Metallica, but a bad move for me. Hmm. A, the expenses were way over budget in Europe, and there was nothing I could do about it from home. B, the phone bill was enormous. I couldn't afford even to make calls to say, how you doing today? How you doing today? What can I do for you today? Yeah. And the only part from the band was, we need more money. We need more money. We need more money. <laughs> right, right. I got no money. I got no money. I got no money. That's why they called me the well is dry on Ride the Lightning. <laughs> All the money on the album, the well is dry. Thank God Music for Nations, you know, came aboard and... Uh, they weren't going to let them not be able to record an album because Metallica were doing great for them in England and Europe. So uh, Music for Nations basically paid me my whole entire advance, not half, and we finished the record. Of course, I made no money as a record company, but Metallica did get Ride the Lightning produced. What were your first impressions when you heard the material coming back from Ride the Lightning? Well, I have to tell you, it wasn't until the album was almost done, if not done, that I got to really listen to it. And I felt it was super produced, sounded really good. And I felt like they did it again. Motherfuckers did it again, you know? And uh, I was very proud of them. And I told them they did a great job. But there was a difference in their response to me already because of the distance and the time I didn't spend with them in England. I won I only went to England at the end to meet them when the album was done to try to get them a deal with uh, the bronze label at the time, the Motorhead label. And uh, that's when I heard it and I fell in love, you know? What could you say about Ride the Lightning? For whom the bell toes creeping death. What album? Mm -hmm. what a, mm -hmm. I think some of James's best writing. Yeah, it's still my favorite Metallica album, and I've you know I love every a lot, one of them. A lot of people. 
With Ride the Lightning also, you know, we were talking about 12-inch singles, also came the Creeping Death single, another great collectible, another uh, very cool record cover. At that point, did it seem like the singles were more of a more of a thing in Europe, or were Americans still chasing those two? At that point, the Creeping Death actually came out of the UK. Mm. It was sold in America as an import through me. And uh, again, I started losing grip that by October of 84, it, it was already curtains. In terms of the uh, the management situation? The management and the label, you know, I, I basically, uh, you know, was at a point where you can't blame the label for anything going bad. And the label can't blame the management. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was the the whipping boy for everything, and I just you know didn't have the money. I had the knowledge, but I just didn't have the money to take it. I think to the next level. It was all coming. It was all around the corner. It was right there, but they made a move. The grass was greener for them, and they made a move, and. Uh, it's okay. It, it depressed me very much and really brought me down. But I still had Anthrax and Raven mm -hmm. and Megaforce. And I felt if I put all that energy into Metallica and we were having so much success, why can't I do it and just do it over and over and over again? So I started Megaforce signing bands and I keep on saying the rest is history, but if you look at this, this, the discography in the book, it almost looked like it's superhuman. How the <laughs> Yeah. Put out nine albums a year and everyone a classic. Mm -hmm. Quite a feat year after year after year. And uh, Megaforce, you know, so I, I like to not be defined as just a guy that discovered Metallica because I managed ministry for five years, Anthrax, 11 years, you know? King's X, you know, I mean, Testament, Overkill. There's so much in our history. Everything from, you know, Anthrax to Fraley's Comet to Exciter, Blue Cheer, King's X, Living Color. I mean, Merciful Fate, you know, uh, the dude, the Stormtroopers of Death album alone, if that was the only thing you had ever put out in your entire career, it would be legendary, <laughs> you know. You know, as bittersweet as it was for Metallica to... Uh, move on to other managers and, and move on to another label, you know, Megaforce was still involved in some capacity with the band in terms of, you know, I mean, the logo was still on the back and, you know, ho hopefully I would imagine that that helped, you know, grow at least the idea of the label and the brand and when keep other bands out, interested in everything. And, and Kill Em All was just like this great catalog piece, like number four in Billboard charts or something like that. I forgot where it went. But, it was really funny. They had on New Year's Eve, you know, they, they had the charts of the, the most powerful, the best-selling labels in the country. And they had Megaforce down for, like, number four <laughs> with Atlantic and Warner Brothers, Polygram. You know, mm -hmm. Megaforce was right up there because of all its catalog sales. And uh, that was uh, a great day for me. I enjoyed that very much. What's your current relationship with the band and, you know, when they when they well, come I, play I on the East Coast and, and that sort of thing? You know, the band takes care of me, my family, my friends. They, they do. They're wonderful to me. 
Um, Lars and company always come out to say hello and we give each other hugs and we talk if we can, but they're very busy. And, you know, I'm not a groupie or anything. You know, I just go, you know, what was, <laughs> no, you're, you're part of the legacy. Down in LA, yeah. LA, down in Orlando. Um, we were invited and we went with a, uh, a van full of people. I, I took six people, eight people to, eight people to the show and, uh, I couldn't get in. So Lars had them give me a police escort, and we followed a police car right to a private parking spot, right by the backstage. It was unbelievable. And then we go up, and he's <laughs> waiting for us, and it was wonderful. And it also, when we did the Rasputin in San Francisco, everybody was warm and loving. Excuse me, in Berkeley. Everybody was warm and loving. And uh, we all today have all good vibes. I mean, even... Michael Lago, I, I, I began, I loved him as time went on and we did all kinds of business together. He was the fellow who signed, for those who don't know, Metallica to Elektra. Uh, we became major mm -hmm. friends in time. You know, uh, I believe in forgiving. I believe in love, thy neighbor. And, uh, I forgive and I don't hold grudges anymore. So uh, my life is good and free and clear of the Metallica depression that once plagued me quite a bit, you know? Did you make it out when they were inducted in the Rock Hall of Fame? It wasn't good for me because I thought for some reason they were going to say thank you. And they didn't mention my name, and we talked mm -hmm. about it shortly after I approached the band. And then Lars went on Howard Stern and mentioned my name five times, you know? <laughs> good for him. Crazy guy. <laughs> you know, so... Now they talk about Johnny Z. They dedicate songs to me when they play live, and I'm there, you know. They're uh, kill them all set. They always say, this one's for Johnny Z, you know, and thank you. So things have come full circle. And uh, as I say, you know, my life isn't about hanging out with rock and roll people and all that stuff. That never really was what it was all about. I was involved in the music. And the music was what it was all about for me. And the fact that there were people involved, I tried to be like a family to those people. You know, maybe that was my problem. Why I got hurt so much, so much. But uh, I, I always tried to do the best I can for the people I work with. And I certainly did that for Metallica and Anthrax and all the other bands. And uh, I hope that becomes my legacy. I think it already is. And I, and I want to, if you'd be so gracious, I'd love to have you back on for a, a part two for another hour after I've had a chance to read the whole book. Oh, the I've, only, I've, only got, I've only got the first chapter right now. I mean, I know a lot of your story, but I want to, I want to read the whole thing. And I love, and I love rock and roll memoirs as a genre. So this one's. You're not going to be able to put it down. I'm telling you now. Well, Johnny, I can't wait to read the book. Thanks so much for coming on. And I, I 100% want to do a part two if you're up for it and talk about everything except everything other than Metallica <laughs> about your career and your book. Really? You really tried my patience here, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, Johnny, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Brian, take care of yourself. All right. Thanks, brother. All right. Bye-bye. 